Um, my name is James, and I serve as the lead pastor uh, of this gathering. Um, it's a good week for you to, to be here, though. Uh, maybe you're returning back from some, some traveling, or again, maybe you're joining us online. It's a good week to be back because today we're actually uh, beginning a brand new sermon series um, that we've decided to name uh, Ecclesia. Ecclesia is how you pronounce that weird-looking word up there. There's not a misspelling. Um, but over the, over the next three weeks or so, um, what we're going to be discussing is the ecclesia. It's the, the church. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with that, with that word, maybe it's new to you, uh, that word, ecclesia, it's a Greek word that's commonly translated uh, as church in the New Testament um, of our Bibles. But more specifically, uh, the word actually means uh, a called-out assembly or a called-out gathering. That's the, the ecclesia. And there are a couple, a couple different reasons that I thought it was important for us to talk about uh, the church and, and work through this series this fall. First of all, um, as, as a newer gathering, uh, I believe if we, we want to be the church that God intends for us to be, that we have to know his intentions for the church. We have to know his definition of the church. Uh, In other words, um, it's not really about what we want Freedom Village to be. It's not even about what I want Freedom Village to be as as the pastor here. Um, Or even what we want to do. Because again, God has already uh, defined the church for us. Uh, He's already given us a clear vision, and a clear mission for his church. He's already told us who we are, and he's already told us what we are to do. And so our responsibility then is to simply know what God has already said about his church. But another reason I think it's important to discuss the the church, uh, especially uh, in this particular time in, in history, uh, is because in 2020, I think we all know this, but the, the church has sort of been forced, uh, not by its choice, but forced to make a shift. Uh, because of COVID-19, uh, we've all had to rethink how we gather, how we approach ministry how we care for one another inside the gathering, uh, how we care and love our neighbors. You know, it's really a unique time that has revealed, I think, it has revealed a lot about what we believe the church to be. And so um, if there was a right time and a right place uh, to discuss some of the foundational elements of what the ecclesia is, uh, I can't see a better time uh, than right now. And so that's where we're going to be headed uh, over the next few weeks together. And then in unpacking the, the capital C, we'll call it the capital C church, I hope what we'll be left with uh, is some clear vision and some clear direction uh, for this local gathering that we call Freedom Village Church uh, as well. Well, just in general, uh, if you want to look into the church, um, if you have questions about uh, the church as a whole, uh, then a great place to study in the Bible is the book of Acts. 
Because the book of Acts is really where the church is formally launched. And so that's where we're going to begin today. And so if you have a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 1, right at the beginning. Acts chapter 1. When we open up Acts 1, we we find ourselves in the middle of what will be Jesus' final appearance to his disciples before his ascension into heaven. At this point, we know that Jesus has, has died on the cross He's resurrected from the dead. He's made appearances uh, for a number of days to several individuals and groups of disciples. And now Jesus and his disciples are gathered together for one final time to hear these lasting and parting words. And so this is what happens or this is what's spoken at that gathering. It's Acts chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 6. You can read this along with me here in this place or at home. Read along with me on the screen. This is what God's word says. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. Well, for the rest of our our time today, our main focus, really the whole duration of our time together, is going to be centered or focused on verse 8. And through verse 8, I want to attempt to answer the question for us to start this sermon series is, what is the church? What is the church? And I think it's interesting, uh, but for those of you, especially those of you here or watching online um, who are familiar with Christianity, uh, maybe you grew up in the church or you've been a part of the church for for some time now, you know that Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is typically used as a missionary sending verse. That's how it's typically used. That's the context for it. And rightfully so, right? Um, Acts 1.8 does speak to us about the importance of going out to the nations. It's a sending verse, right? And we're going to get to that in just, just a little bit. But what I actually want to suggest to us today is that actually Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is much more than that. That actually this passage is, is key. It is fundamental to understanding the identity of the church. That what Jesus is really doing here in the beginning of Acts chapter 1, before he goes back to, to be with God the Father, is actually he's defining the church. He's telling us who we are, who we're going to be. And ultimately, what I, what I hope to show you, it's sort of my thesis for today, I guess you could say, 
But I believe what we're going to discover through Jesus' words, through Acts 1, specifically Acts 1-8, is that the church is not a what, but a who. That the church is not a what, but a who. In other words, first and foremost, the church is not the things that we do, but more so who a particular group of people are. And that means, listen carefully, that the church is actually not a place, but rather those who are gathered in a place. To put this really simply, the church is people. It's people. Uh, And therefore, while I think it's certainly okay to ask the question, what is the church? Perhaps the, the more appropriate question to ask is, who is the church? And so let's explore that question together. Who is the church? That's how we're going to begin this series. What defines these people and makes them a part of the ecclesia? Well, here in Acts chapter 1, I believe we see three characteristics of the church. Three features, you could say, of the body of Christ. And so if you're taking notes today, I hope you are. Um, But the first is this. Who is the church? The church is people. I think we see here in Acts 1.8. The church is people who are empowered by the Spirit. Empowered by the Spirit. Let's go back to the text. We see there again, Jesus says, but you will receive power. When? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In other words, After Jesus ascends, after Jesus leaves the earth, back to heaven to, again, be with God the Father, uh, be with God the uh, Father, his followers, he says, will now be people who are literally filled with God himself. We know from the scriptures that the Holy Spirit is a person, right? And that's really important. I think Uh, Because of some of the old English translations of the Bible, specifically, like even the King James, that we get that phrase like Holy Ghost, right? We have this idea that the Holy Spirit is sort of this, like, I don't know, floating aura or mist that kind of moves around. No, but the Holy Spirit is actually a person. That's really important for us to understand. John 16, verse 7 says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Jesus says this, it is to your advantage that I go away. He's talking about, he's predicting his ascension. For if I do not go away, the helper, helper there, capital H, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, what did he say? I will send him, him to you. So we clearly see the Spirit is a him here. But not only is the Holy Spirit a person, we find multiple times in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is actually clearly God as well. I think the best example of that is in Acts chapter 5. A few chapters after Acts 1, our main text today, we see this man named Ananias. Um, He actually lies about the money and the possessions that he he has. Um, Actually, what what he does, he fails to be generous. He holds back from giving. And unfortunately for him and his wife, um, they both die. Um, They both die there in their sin. Um, You can read about that again in Acts chapter 5. But when the apostle Peter confronts Ananias about this issue, look at what 
he says. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And then look at, you have not lied to man, but to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. So we see here clearly from the context of this text that the Holy Spirit and God are one in the same. That lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God because the Holy Spirit is God. You follow that with me? And now in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says that it's this Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God, that will come upon you and empower you. And I hope this is obvious. But having God, having God, think of this, having God live and dwell inside of a person is pretty significant. And Jesus actually shows us how important the Holy Spirit is to his followers. We're going to kind of work a little bit backwards in our text today. But back in verse 4 of Acts 1, if you have your Bible, that's why you should have it. You can, you can turn back there and see this all in the context. But we see that Jesus, again, remember, he's gathered with all his disciples, sort of making this final proclamation. And then he gives them this command. He says, do not leave Jerusalem. Interesting. He says, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Now, that's a really significant statement. We can't miss this. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, don't go. Wait. And this is especially strange if you know the story of Jesus's life and what Jesus commanded and taught these exact same followers just days before this took place. Because in the gospel of Matthew, right at the end of Matthew, Chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus gives the disciples what we now in the Christian community commonly call the Great Commission. He tells them to go, to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. But here in Acts, he says, don't go, put on the brakes, stop, wait. And certainly this is not a contradiction, okay? Jesus saying, go, and then a few days later saying, no, stop, right? That's not a contradiction. But rather, Jesus is making the point for us that to to go out and to accomplish the mission that he's called us to, to go and do what God asks, we need the Spirit with us and we need the Holy Spirit in us. That's how significant being empowered with the Spirit is. And that's the reason that he gifts the Spirit to us as well, because he wants us to accomplish the mission. We have to have God's power. We have to be indwelt. We have to be filled with the Holy Spirit to accomplish his will 
and to live for his ways. It's essential. You can't do it without the Spirit. I mean, think about this with me. These people who Jesus is talking to here, here in Acts, these individuals, I think we could all agree, at least at some level, they are, they are pretty well trained up to this point. Right? They've been personally taught by Jesus himself. They've had the privilege of walking with him, being first account eyewitnesses to his life. Right? By man's standards, they are equipped. If anyone has the resume to live like Jesus and to live for Jesus, to go accomplish the mission, it's these guys right here. You know, there's a reason, I think, sort of strategically, I don't know when it became common practice, but there is a reason that when, if you go to seminary, that the Master of Divinity program is three years. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's because Jesus' disciples followed Jesus for three years. But I can tell you, I love my school. I love where I went to school. Okay, I learned a lot, but it was far and far away from the opportunity that these guys had to walk with Jesus. These women had to walk with Jesus, to be with Jesus, to eat with Jesus, to have conversations with the Son of God, the Son of Man, every single day for almost three years. These people, by our standards, were equipped to go do the work of the ministry. But with Jesus' command here, we see that who they are and what they know is not enough. That they needed God's power. They needed authority from on high as well. And Jesus actually demonstrates our need for us in earlier in his ministry. We see this. It's a great story. We see this in his baptism. See, at Jesus' baptism, he goes in. He's with John the Baptist. He's immersed. He's put under the water. And then as he comes out of the water, what do we see? Well, the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, comes down, and the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes and rests on him. Or another way to say that, the Spirit came to dwell on him or to be with him. You can read about that account in Matthew chapter 3. But what's the point of me me sharing that? Why did Jesus do that? Hey, we'll get this, right? Shortly after Jesus' baptism, we know that at that point, Jesus begins his earthly ministry in Nazareth. And while he's there, he stands up in the synagogue, and we're not sure, but it looks like he, he picks a text with intentionality. He opens up a scroll. It's from the book of Isaiah. And listen to the text that he chooses. I don't think this is a coincidence. It's Luke chapter 4, 18. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You see that? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And so Jesus says here, 
as the sent Messiah, as the coming Savior of the world, listen, because the Holy Spirit is upon me, because the Spirit is upon me, I'm able to preach the gospel. You see that? He's saying, the Spirit is empowering me. The Spirit is with me so that I can do my ministry. So even Jesus himself, the God-man, when he came to this earth, he was only able to fulfill his calling, his mission. He was only able to glorify God through his ministry because the Holy Spirit was with him and the Holy Spirit was empowering him. And don't, underst- no, don't misunderstand me. Jesus didn't need the Holy Spirit, okay? He was God. He could have done it on his own as Jesus, as God in the flesh. He could have done whatever he wanted at any time, any moment. But he chooses, or he chose to submit himself to his flesh and submit himself to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he wanted to set an example for what you and I his followers, his disciples need. He does this as an example for us. That if we are going to go out and make disciples of all nations, if we're going to obey the commands of God and bring God glory through our lives, if we're going to proclaim good news, we too are in need of the Holy Spirit in us, with us, and empowering us. Without the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. Without the Holy Spirit, we have no authority. That's why the Spirit was worth waiting for. And that's why the Spirit is given as such a precious gift. And then let me say this this one final thing about the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's significance in our lives. Being empowered by the Holy Spirit is significant because it represents the covenant that we actually have with God. Back in verse 4 of chapter 1, Acts 1, 4, you may remember that Jesus specifically said, we already read it, he says, wait for the promise the Father has given. See that? And that's an important distinction here. Because we know that several times in Jesus' ministry, he had himself promised the coming Spirit to his disciples. But there's a reason that he specifically refers to the Father's name here, or the Father's promise here. Flip back with me quickly to the book of Ezekiel. Book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 is a, is a prophecy, contains a prophecy, actually, of the new covenant. The, the new relationship that God was going to establish with his people. And this promise actually happens about 600 years before Jesus' words here in Acts chapter 1. So look at these words with me, starting in verse 25. God, the Father, says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. 
And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. Look, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Here it is again. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, my law. So this is what the the father promised. That with this new relationship with him, with this covenant with God, his followers would receive, actually receive a new heart and therefore a new identity. And what is the sign of that new heart? What's the sign of that new identity? What sets them apart? It's the Holy Spirit within them. It's the Holy Spirit in us, sealing us actually in this new relationship with God. And so we can actually say that the church is people of the new covenant, of this new relationship. People who are in a relationship with God, actually one with God, because God, the Holy Spirit, is in those individuals. And because the Holy Spirit is in those covenant people, they can live their lives with power and authority. The church, the ecclesia, it is a called out, set apart gathering. It's a people. The church is people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's one of the defining characteristics of the church. Number two, I told you there's three. These last two move a little quicker. But number two, I believe you see here in Acts 1 that the church is people who are centered on the gospel. Number two, there are people who are centered on the gospel. Back to verse 8. Again, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then look at this phrase. And you will be my witnesses. We're going to pause there. And you will be my witnesses. So again, these people, they're set apart in that they are indwelt. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. But also, what what defines this people, or what's going to define this group of people, is that they are witnesses for Jesus. If you were reading this text for the very first time, and you had absolutely no knowledge of the Bible, uh, I would hope that you would, that the, mo- the majority of you, who are a little bit more logical at least, that you would ask this very, what I think is very practical question. You would ask yourself, okay, witnesses to what? Because he doesn't say. Okay, you're going to be my witnesses. All right. What am I witnessing of, to, who? Because to be a witness of something or someone implies that you have seen or experienced that thing. That's how it works. That's what it means to be a witness. And we see, of course, that this is certainly true of the people here at this gathering with Jesus. These disciples. Again, we know that they had experienced Jesus with their lives. They had 
heard his teachings. And beyond that, they had, probably most importantly, they had actually witnessed and seen his resurrection. That's why in verse 3 in Acts 1, it says, He, being Jesus, presented himself alive to them, resurrected before them, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking about, what? The kingdom of God. And so Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. Witnesses of what I did. Witnesses of what I said. Witnesses of my death and, key, my resurrection. In other words, you are going to be witnesses of the gospel. And what is the gospel? What is the good news? Well, I'll sum it up really shortly, but if you're really curious, you can go back all the way to like March. I think those sermons are still online. We did a whole series, like five weeks on what is the gospel. But I'll try to sum it up. What's the good news? Well, Jesus told his followers clearly in Mark chapter 1 at the very beginning at the launch of his ministry. This is what he says in verse 14. He says, now after, it says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into the Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So he walks into Galilee, he starts his ministry, he's proclaiming the gospel. And what is the gospel? What is he saying? He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then we see this same exact gospel, the same message being preached by the apostles and the newly formed church. Look at Acts chapter 8. The church has been scattered because of persecution. You can read about that through the Acts narrative. And Philip, the apostle, he scatters off to Samaria. That's where he ends up. And this is what it says. Verse 12, Acts 8, 12. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed or preached good news, that's the gospel, about what? The kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so we clearly see in these texts that proclaiming the gospel is telling people, sharing the message of the kingdom of God, that we have a king who rules and reigns forever. And Jesus is that King, Jesus, the Son of God, who who lived a sinless life, who paid the price for our sins through his death on the cross, and who conquered death through his resurrection, so that we can be what? Reconciled and restored back into a right relationship with God. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. When Jesus presented himself. It says there, for 40 days, he was resurrected and he's walking around town. You can kind of imagine this. For 40 days to his followers. What was he doing? He was making sure that his followers, his disciples, clearly understood the gospel. That they clearly understood the kingdom message. But not only so that they could teach it, but also so that they could live it out as well. Because we know this, right? It's not enough to just know the truths about the gospel. We actually have to also give our lives to the gospel as well. 
See, to be centered on the gospel, it means far beyond knowing a bunch of, even theology, a bunch of facts about God. It means that your life is actually being affected by the truths of the gospel. That you're experiencing transformation in your life. That you're becoming more like Jesus. And that Jesus is becoming more and more at the center of every single thing that you do. Being centered on the gospel means that Jesus is your first love. It means that he's first and foremost in your life. It means that he is in your work. It means that he's in your marriage, in your friendships, in your parenting, in your conversations, in your finances even. This is what it means to to center your life around Jesus and the gospel. That the gospel saturates, it permeates every aspect of your life. You see, you cannot, you cannot be a witness for the kingdom unless you belong to the kingdom. You can't proclaim and be a witness to the love, the grace, and the mercy of God unless you've experienced it and are living it out yourself. And so to be a witness for Christ requires that your whole life revolves around that witness, revolves around the gospel. The church is people. The church is a called out gathering whose center is Jesus and his kingdom. It is people who are centered on the gospel. And then finally, we see that the church is people who are, number three, sent on mission. Sent on mission. One more time, back to Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. And he kind of extends here from inner circle to out. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The idea here is that now, with the Holy Spirit, who gives you power, who gives you authority, and with the gospel message of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, what do you do? You go. You go. We live our lives, in other words, we live our lives on mission Everywhere we go, to the very ends of the earth. This is who we are. Now, simply put, those of us who are, who are followers of Jesus, the church, we are all missionaries. Every single one of us. We are sent ones. Set apart, sent ones. That is who we are. So this is not just a message or a command or an identity for professors of the Bible. It's not just for professional, we'll call them professional Christians, okay? Like seminary graduates or pastors. It's every single one of us. Because each of us are given the Holy Spirit. 
If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, it means that you have become a witness to and of the gospel. You've experienced Christ. That's what it means, which means that now you have the call to go and tell others. To tell them what you've heard, to tell them what you've seen, to tell them what you've experienced. You're now called to show the world the truth about Jesus. To show them the gospel. To show your neighbor love and joy. To demonstrate a life of of grace and mercy. Or specifically in this season of life. right? This year even, we are called to show others what it looks like to make it through a global pandemic patiently faithfully and with a glad, sincere, and thankful heart. Because the church is people who live their lives on mission for the mission of God. So church family, be the sent one that you are. Join Jesus' mission for you to make disciples of all nations, teaching them, teaching others, your neighbors, your family, your co-workers, person at the cafe, to teach others all the things that Jesus taught us while he was on the earth. This is the church. The church is people. And this is how Jesus has characterized his followers. It's who we are. And therefore, it's his vision for his set-apart called people. I said in the very beginning, we don't get to determine who we are as Freedom Village Church or what we want to do. It's already been set and put in place. The vision is already set for us. And therefore, this gathering should, it needs to be a reflection. And it will be, as long as I'm here, it will be a reflection of Jesus' vision for the church. And therefore, our, vi- our vision at Freedom Village is really simple. Our vision is to be the church. People who are empowered by the Spirit, centered on the gospel, and sent on mission. That's who Jesus has asked us and called us and set us up to be. And that's who we're going to be as a local church in Seoul, Korea, in Haebongchon. We're going to be the church. We're going to help people be the church. We're going to help you. I'm going to try to help you help me be more filled with the Holy Spirit. Because we need his power and authority in our lives. I need your help and I'm going to help you and people in this community. We have to get together even online. Virtually this fall and the winter, we're going to gather around each other to encourage, to challenge each other, to be people who are centered on the gospel so that every area of our lives is submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, not just once a week or for an hour and a half or even twice a week in a small group setting or in a local gathering. Every area of your life should be centered on the gospel. We want to help you do that. That's our vision. And then with that, we're going to live out the gospel to our neighbors. That's who we need to be because that's who Jesus has called us to be. That's that's our vision. That's our aim. To be these people. To be Acts 1 people. 
and to help other people become those people as well. You know, imagine what it would look like. You can get inside of my head for a minute. You can get inside of a dream. Imagine what it would look like to be a gathering of people who are totally full of the Spirit of God, who chose daily to empty themselves of themselves, who always make the choice to to walk in the Spirit, by the Spirit, and with the Spirit. Always. People who are completely in tune, so in touch with what God is saying, with his will and with his ways. So full of the Spirit, so full of the Holy Spirit that it's actually overflowing out of us and into the lives of everyone who is around us. Imagine what it would look like to be a... To be a gathering of people whose lives are centered on the gospel in every single way. That we weren't just a bunch of people who who knew about the life and the teachings of Jesus. But we actually live the way that Jesus has asked us to live. What if here, why not us? Why what if here in this gathering? Jesus was actually in the center of every single thing that we did when we gathered together. Could you even fathom? Could you even fathom, fathom what a gathering of people with that level of dedication and devotion would look like? What if we actually believed and lived our lives as if we were not just set apart and holy, but also sent out as well. That we, we saw ourselves as servants of the Most High God. That we saw ourselves as, as ambassadors of the King of Kings. What if we actually lived our lives as missionaries because we actually are missionaries? Can you imagine What would happen if a gathering of people lived with this type of intentionality with the people around them? That you actually, every encounter that you have at a restaurant with a waiter, walking down the street, bumping into someone at the subway, you looked at that person and didn't see them as a stranger. You looked at them with intentionality as somebody who is created in the image of God that has a purpose that God has a plan for their life, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, if you would dare to share the truth, they would come into this fold and be set apart like you. Maybe, just maybe, that would happen if we would all commit ourselves to this. What if we, even just for a week, (laughs) for my own life, I'm speaking to myself, I'm preaching to myself, what if all of us, all together, would actually commit to taking our eyes eyes off of ourselves and off of our circumstances and to put them on the person of Jesus Christ and the brokenness of our city. If you've been at this gathering for even a couple of weeks, even just a couple of weeks, you know that every single time we end our gathering, we end it with a phrase. I usually say it, a lot of the times, and I'll commission you 
charge you. I'll say, go be the church. I say that every single week that I'm here. And maybe now you see why. It's not just a cool phrase that looks good on a sticker. Maybe we'll have a sticker someday that you can have. (laughs) All right? But it's not just that. The charge, go be the church, is actually a vision that has a purpose. It's a charge and a call to be who God has called you and I to be. For those of us who have confessed with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. For those of us who are living our lives as if that is actually true. Here's the bottom line for you and I today. Simple. We are the church. Empowered by the Spirit. Centered on the gospel. And sent on mission. That's who we are. So let's be the church. Amen? Would you pray with me?